Good morning, beautiful people. It is Wednesday in the Elm. If it's around nine o'clock, you've got me, Babs Rolls Ivy. Welcome to Love Babs Love Talk. Harry is out having a much needed colonoscopy. Believe me, it was no easy feat talking him into do it, but he needs to do it because he's a man over 50 and he has colon cancer on both sides of his family. And it's been a minute since he's had uh, one. He should get them every two to three years. And it's been about five since he had one. So he is getting that done this morning. And I'm happy because, you know, when you get early detection, it can save your life. And we want Harry's life to be saved. So he is doing that today. He'll be back tomorrow to tell us blow by blow <laughs> of, of what the experience was like. And I dare say he was already whining about what he had to do to get ready for it. So, but you know, he's asleep. So, you know, it's not like they ask you to participate, you know, be awake or anything. You are fully knocked out. So they do what they do. Um, yeah. So I just had another person I know um, had a colonoscopy and it found polyps and cancer, cancerous polyps. And he, they went in and thank God he had it done. Uh, because they caught it, they removed a lot of it, then they went back in with surgery and uh, um, and a small amount of uh, radiation and he's he's up and running and back back doing his thing. So you know, listen, early detection for anything. This is still breast cancer awareness month. It is October. Get the tatas looked at. Uh, I'm gonna have Dr. Camelia Lawrence on. Now, she is a breast surgeon. She's going to be on at the end of the month because, you know, listen, every month is Breast Cancer Awareness Month as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, for those of us, those of y'all who need a yearly reminder, October is it. You know, I'm having mine done uh, in 2023. In the spring, I'm due. I'm due 2023. I've already made the appointment. So, and I don't have my colonoscopy until next year. When I turn 60, <laughs> 60, 60, six, zero. Oh my God. I can't believe I'm looking at 60. I'm not like, oh my God, I can't do it. Like, no, oh my God. Like this is beyond my wildest dreams. Like I don't even, I hadn't planned on being here after 60. So I hadn't planned on being after 57 because, you know, I felt some kind of way. My mom passed at 57 and I was always, you know, I was always nervous about turning 57. And when I was 57, I was nervous for the whole year. Like I was just like, ah. and then when I turned 58, I was like, all right. And then 59, I was like, hey. So 60 in Marrakesh is going to be a capstone. And uh, I'm just excited. So that's where we are. Anyway, it's Wednesday in the Elm. Um, I'm talking to the hella talented um, Nikki uh, Davidoff at 1015. He's got his book on the other side of Prospect. Uh, and so I'm talking with him. And I'm going to go see him talk with um, Mr. Betts at the public library downtown, the Miller Public Library, the New Haven Free Public Library downtown tonight at 630. So I'm going to go do that because uh, cool coolness 
So I'll do that. And then uh, what else am I doing? I think that's enough, right? Uh, the the uh, Soup Kitchen downtown is on 84, 84 Broadway. It's having their celebration at 6.30 to 7.30. So if you want to support the uh, Soup Kitchen, here is your opportunity. Um, I have it in my calendar because, you know, I care about these kinds of things. And uh, I'm going uh, I'm, to I'm stay in touch and on top. So, uh, you know. I'm gonna stay in touch. So speaking of Marrakesh, <laughs> Ooh. yes, that's my vibe. That is my vibe. Um, I'm sorry, I was distracted for a hot minute because somebody sent me something on Marrakesh and I'm just like all oh, gaga because I can't wait to go and be there and walk the streets and just be you know, holy in North Africa, chilling. So we'll see how this all plays out. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it is chilly in the L. I have not turned my heat on yet. I've not turned on my heat. I know, but I have, I have space heater in my bedroom, which is really nice. And it heats, heats up so much, I have to turn it off. Uh, and then there's a small space heater in the bathroom. I have turned the heat on. I mean, the heat is going to come on. I just don't want to do it in October. I don't know what this is with me. Like, I don't know why I'm so like old lady. I don't want to turn my heat on. You know, I guess because I miss my fireplace and that's it. <laughs> I, just, I just miss my fireplace. So we'll turn the heat on and, uh, and uh, I'll turn it on. Cause I think it's going to warm up just a little bit and uh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So I know I was chatting with people on Facebook yesterday. They, they were like, Oh, I can't take it. I'm turning on the heat. I was like, okay, I'm gonna stick it out a little bit longer. See what happens. See what happens. I'm going to turn it on later. Do my do my very uh do my very thing. We'll see what happens. Uh what else? What else is going on? Y'all know what's going on. Oh, I'm going over to uh I'm going over to the Omni for a conversation this morning. Uh I'm going over for a conversation called the uh, what is it called? Up together at the Omni, and uh, it is hosted by Cesar Aleman, right? And uh, I thought I sent him the thing. Oh, your peoples didn't give it to you. Anyway. I got too many moving parts this morning. Way too many. But anyway, um, let me go back and say this. Um, they are having a conversation about, I want to say, inequities um, and what can be done about inequities in 
pay or wages, living wages. And uh, 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 and so they're having this conversation. They're convening all these people and they invited me to come. And so I'm going to come and go spend some time with them listening. Uh, 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 to uh, uh, what the conversation is going to be and what, what they think they could do about it. And they're touting some interesting things that, I've, that I'm seeing happening in places like Oakland and other places that are doing it. I think, um, I don't want to say what it is until I get all the right information because I know people listen and I don't want to, I don't want to um, send it to, uh, I don't want to put misinformation out there until I know what the hell I'm talking about. So, so I will report back tomorrow. <laughs> well, I think I can read you the information. Uh, uh, but uh, that's fine. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, the thing about radio is when you watch radio, you can see me. And uh, and I can be, uh, I can look distracted and be distracted all at the same time. <laughs> um. I'm trying to look for the uh, for the for the thing for the for the press thing, because I think it was important and I was really interested in it. And uh, oh man, I have to get over there at eleven fifteen. Uh, let me see what it is. Up together community learning session. So up together strength based approach to trusting and investing in communities. So it's today from eleven thirty to one. And uh, the goals are community nonprofit leaders and residents are invited to learn with us how we could support social and economic mobility in our communities. Okay, so what is up together and how does it work? And who has done this before and what has happened and how could up together work in Connecticut? And could this be one approach to become one more community driven, to become more community driven in our community foundation efforts? So um, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to listening. And uh, as soon as, uh, as soon as they are ready, I'm gonna have some people come on and talk about this. I don't, I don't know where they're gonna go with this, but I, I have a sense of what I think this is, but I'm gonna be in the room today and listen till about one o'clock. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. And uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know if people check their LinkedIn. I rarely check my LinkedIn, rarely. <laughs> I, I rarely check it. And uh, it is, uh, I don't know. I have so many uh, requests 
and I never checked this thing. So I need to go back and uh, look at it. I don't know. Do people use their LinkedIn? I mean, it's, I know it's, <clears throat> I know a lot of people do, and it's a professional, professionally driven, right? Like it's not a dating site or it's not like Facebook and it's not like Twitter. It's a, uh, it is businessy. So, hmm, interesting. So, Anyway, I've had one forever. I need to probably go and update it and add stuff and clean it up and converse with people and check in and all of that. So maybe I'll get to that sometime this week while I, you know, I don't have any downtime. So I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, I know, no, I'm not going to say that. I do have downtime. I create down, I start from a place of downtime. Let me, let me now say that. Cause I'm not a, I'm not a, um, I'm not an ever ready bunny, you know, I, I actually, uh, yeah, so, hmm. anyway, um, what, what was I, where was I? I've got so many calendar things happening that I'm paying attention to not, not one of them fully. Um, I, I, I tell you what, I watched the debate last night um, with um, Johanna Haynes and Logan, and he just, he just is not ready for prime time. And I don't, I don't, I know the Republicans, they don't care who they run as long as their agenda is carried out. Um. So I watched him just flounder out there about nothing. And she was, let me tell you something. She was very clear and concise and badass. I mean, she was like talking the talk. I watched the whole thing. I mean, it was like an hour, right? I thought the moderators sucked. Like I, I thought that cat from News Channel 8, he should not have been up there moderating. I mean, he was just like, out of out of his element like just report the news don't don't try to moderate because you just he just he just was not good and she had to take him the task too because he he just was out of his depth and that's all right when you're out of your depth it's all right it is quite all right sometimes you got to say you know what i'm i i might be good at a lot of things and this is one of the things i'm not good at you know because he just seemed out of out of his league you know and i don't know why they picked him but maybe he just wanted to do it and be like in the mix and you know bring some something to the state i don't know but he was awful um but johanna haynes was incredible she was calm cool and collected i mean she really was just like all right i know what i'm doing and this is what i've done and i do this 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 and he, Logan, was just, this is George, George Logan. He just looked wild-eyed and foolish. Oh, the borders, opioids, and oh. Because, you know, the question was about marijuana. And he's like, oh, I don't want to talk about marijuana. I want to talk about, I'm like, yeah, I'm for, I'm for legalized marijuana, blah, blah, blah. Opioids, opioids. And the border, the border. <laughs> and I thought to myself, 
brother, if you <laughs> if you don't stop carrying that Republican toting that Republican piss, I don't know what to tell you. You just saying all the things that they like to hear, and and all the things at the stay on message, and that's all they do. And if you and and, and all the things that he said he cares about is not in the Republican playbook. I I I never met a Republican who cared about anything other than wealth creation for that one percent. I even the ones who ain't even in that bracket tote that water for the ones who are. So he says, I, I listen, people in the fifth district, I don't know if y'all can hear me or listen to me, or if y'all know people in the fifth district, do not vote for George Logan. That is a waste of your vote. <sighs> and no vote is a waste if you if this is where you truly are leaning. But gosh, if you want some stuff done and, and you know where y'all are in the state, uh, you, you don't want to be having no Republican-led nothing. But anyway, so, and then I watched a little bit of the Val Deming, Marco Rubio debate in Florida. Holy cow, she ate him up. Like she, <laughs> like, uh, like she put him on a charcuterie board and just sliced him up. <laughs> and there was nothing that he could do but just look down and mumble. And I was like, what? But they like that Marco Rubio, I must say. They like it because he carries that Republican piss well. And they, people in, in these places that vote against their own interests, it's as if they don't believe, they, as it, it is as if the people that vote for these fools think they are aligned with these fools. They really think that they're in their bracket and have their interests. They don't have none of your interests at heart, not one. And you steady stay voting for people who do not have your interests, who could care less about the economy, is not feeling the effects of the economy, is not dealing with anything related to heating their homes, putting gas in their cars, paying bills or anything. These cats are not even feeling the effects of this. But you know who is? You. And yet you vote for these people who have no awareness of your situation, not interested in your situation, and is not going to raise a finger to help you in your situation. So I don't understand these people who just consistently vote against their best interests. White women, y'all are the worst at this, at the worst. These white men are not gonna save you. They're gonna throw you under the bus. They are already throwing you under the bus by telling you you do not have agency over your body. They're already telling you this. So if you are not willing to at least take care of your own interests, what about the other people whose interests you might have to be concerned about? I just don't, I don't understand these white women. I don't, I don't understand them. That they will wholeheartedly vote against their best interests. These fools voted for Donald Trump, who don't give a damn about women. Not one damn. And yet they run in droves. They put on the T-shirts. He could grab mine. I was like, y'all are stupid. Just stupid. Meanwhile, sisters over here like, we're going to back Hillary Clinton. Because, you know, she talks to us. We know her. And we, she's got uh, at least got some moral compass. And she's way overqualified. 
<laughs> more qualified than anybody in the history of the presidency, and she didn't win. These clowns voted for a carnival barker, a confidence man, hands down. And I, I don't understand how you can vote against your own interests. I, I don't. I literally do not understand that. When you sit where you sit and you are surrounded in, 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 in muck and mire and these cats is living it up on the high life and you are not a, even adjacent to that, let alone in that bracket, you're not even adjacent. And you think that these people have your interest, they don't have talked to you, they don't have come see you, they don't have come raise the issues. Oh, Lord, black Jesus, help me. Help me somebody, help me. So I don't know. Is there another debate coming up? I think I think the governor has another debate with Bob and Bob Stefanowski and uh, but did Bob back out? I think he backed out. I think he backed out. I don't understand these. And these debates are not real debates. They're just, you know, sling, sling. Let me sling, sling stuff at you. See what sticks. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. I just don't. And nobody ever comes with real uh, grasp of what is happening. I mean, the incumbents do because they got a whole team of people that can give you actual things. The uh, folks who are running against them got to sort of take a guess at what they would do. You know, this is my best guess <laughs> of what I might do. This is it. Because you can't really say full stop that you know what you'll do when you get in there because you don't know what you face. It's like when you buy somebody else's house or when you buy a house, not even somebody else's house. It, it, it passes all the inspections until you get in there and you live in it for a minute and then you're like, oh, I got to deal with this. I got to deal with this. I got to deal with this before I have to do all the things that I said I wanted to do when I just walked through. <laughs> you know, you just walk through and you're like, yeah, 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 I get this. Yeah, I like this. The size, scope, the tenor, blah, 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 blah. I like it. But when you move in, that's when it really happens. You're like, oh, I got to deal with this. Yes. I got to deal with this. Yes. Oh, I got to deal with this, 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 this before I can even do the little projects that I thought I was going to do first? Yes. That's why debates are ridiculous to me. But, I, but they're necessary. They're necessary. Because I think you need to stand up and say, this is what I believe. This is the, the, this is the, the, the way I think we should move forward. Um, and I'm going to take a look at this, 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 this. I stand on this. So a debate allows you to see people for what who they are and what they are. More so than these little, little ridiculous ads that everybody's running, right? All these ads. Oh, oh, this like the little white woman sitting there. Johanna Haynes hasn't done anything. She just made it worse. And I know if I was stupid, I would just like, wow, what is that? But I'm smart, right? By my own admission, I'm smart. I would want more detail, like I want more context and detail about this ad because I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I, and she, what do you, I mean, what do you want Johanna Hands to do? Come to your house and, and buy your groceries? Like, I'm just trying to understand. You sitting from a place of privilege talking about what she's not doing. 
but you don't actually say what she's not doing. You're just like, oh, across the board, she's not doing anything. I, what does that even mean? I want people to question this foolishness. Like, ask them, but you can't ask her because she's either some actor or just some person that's on the other side who's just happy to do it. I don't know. But I want to ask them, what, what exactly do you mean? I saw an ad against Dick Blumenthal, which I just thought was just outrageous. <laughs> and I thought, that is a bridge too far. So it, I think it was something about Dick Blumenthal doesn't care about the opioid crisis and fentanyl. <laughs> and I'm like, why would you say that? <laughs> That's not, that's not even true. <laughs> so I, I just, I did, and you know, they blur the lines with truth so well uh, that they can almost get away with stuff. And particularly if people are not doing their media literacy, they're not media literate. They're not listening to what is said. They're not dissecting what is said. They are not going to go look up and see uh, well, where does Blumenthal stand on? Well, he stands on this, 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 and this. And it's not hidden under a rock. You just have to go and look at the record or look at the comments. You could Listen, people can Google anything and everything these days. You can find out um, what, the, what, the water, what the water quality is in Kalamazoo. I mean, you could just... <laughs> there's nothing... There's nothing... Uh, there's nothing, there's no information that you cannot find. I mean, literally, it is at your fingertips. And uh, I just find it, uh, I just find it all very interesting. And uh, I, uh, I'm ready for them to stop. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just ready for them to stop. And uh, it is just too much. And it's exhausting. And it's not even, it doesn't get to the heart of what I need to know about what I want to ask. Uh, what I want to ask um, candidates. It's not even close to what I would want, you know. Uh, it's not even close to what I want. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's where I stand. Uh, the elections are coming up and uh, midterms are just as important as, you know, the general and let's go vote. Um, I believe we've got uh, uh, a question about early voting on the ballot. You know, should we have early voting? I think we, I mean, I think, I think all the pathways to voting ought to be open and clear. That's, that's where I'm at. I, I, I don't understand, I understand why you want to disenfranchise voters because Republicans can't win if they don't. So this is their way 
of at least trying to level the playing field by denying access to the vote. And uh, and Connecticut uh, is not unlike uh, a lot of states that don't have early voting. I, I just find it problematic, you know. Uh, we just got to the place where we can have absentee va absentee ballots without a whole rigmarole about, well, why do you need one? <laughs> you know, no excuse absentee voting. <laughs> you know, before we had to have like 8 million, 8 million reasons why. Now, you know, early voting. So let me tell you who has early voting. And uh, so there is a, a piece out. I don't know how old this piece is. Oh, this is from 2020. Well, I mean, I think the reasons for early voting remain the same, whether it's 2020 or 2022. Early voting makes it more convenient for Americans who may not be able to make it to their polling places on election day, which is always a Tuesday to cast their ballots. The practice is always also designed to increase voter participation and reduce problems such as overcrowding at polling places. So, so for me, the takeaway is increase voter participation. That's number one. The criticism is that uh, they don't like it because it allows voters to cast their votes before they have all the necessary information about candidates running for office. Okay, early voting is not six months before, uh, it's not six months before the election. It's usually like a week or so before the election, right? A couple of, like a week or two before the election. So I, I, I don't understand that. <laughs> uh, there is also evidence that turnout is slightly lower in states that allow early voting. Yes, because people can just drop their ballots off, mail their, do all the things without having to, or go to the polls if the polls are open, you know, in advance of waiting for election day where you still have to get to work, you still have to pick up your kids, you still have to do all these things. So when a large share of the votes is cast well in advance of the first Tuesday in November, campaigns begin to scale back their late efforts. The parties run fewer ads, shift workers, uh, uh, they, they run fewer ads and shift workers to more competitive states. So to get out the vote effort in particular becomes uh, much less efficient when so many people have already voted. Like I said, open all the pathways. Uh, so when election day is merely the end of a long voting period, it lacks the sort of civic stimulation that used to be provided by local news media coverage and discussion around the water cooler. What? <laughs> that is not a strong enough argument for me. Then level up. That's all I got to say. Level up. Level up. Uh, and then, you know, I voted stickers on their lapels on election day because people like those. I like I voted stickers too. But seriously, though, that can't be the, the, the deterrent to early voting. 
you know what? Make some stickers that say, I early voted. <laughs> That's just add early to that. I early voted. <laughs> like, you know, put a little, put a little, just put a little Sharpie. I early voted. What you, what, this makes no, you know. Uh, so voters who choose to cast their ballots before election day in one of the states that allow early voting can do so as far as 45 days or as fewer as four days in advance of the November election. Early voting may end several days before or the day before the election. Early voting often takes place at county elections offices, but is also permitted in some states at schools and libraries. States that allow early voting in the United States uh, 38 states in the District of Columbia allow in-person early voting. I like that. According to the National Conference of State Legislators, uh, that data. So the states that have in-person early voting, Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. States with all male voting. As of 2020, there are five states that conduct all male voting and allow ballots to be turned in before election day. Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, Washington. States that do not allow early voting. The following seven states do not allow in-person early voting as of 2020. Though approved absentee ballots may be delivered before election day. Connecticut, Delaware, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Delaware has plans to enact uh, early voting this year. So I personally, I don't think we want to be on any list with Kentucky, Mississippi, South Carolina. I don't think we want to be on this list. <laughs> not when alabama leads states that allow early voting no shade to alabama but no one is thinking alabama is progressive no one none of these not not arizona not alabama i certainly don't think arizona is arizona was the last state to to uh adopt the mlk holiday like what Come on, y'all. Come on, Connecticut. Seriously, you want to be in the ranks. <laughs> you you want to be far away from these little states that are crazy as possible. I mean, we're on a list with Mississippi, for God's sake. The poorest state in the country. And Republican-led. So anyway, we got we got some questions to ask to answer we have a question to answer and we should answer it 
We really should. Um, Gary Winfield sent, sent it to me the other day. Um, last week, I think he sent me the, the question that's going to be on the ballot. And uh, shall the Constitution of the state be amended to permit the General Assembly to provide for early voting? That is the question for Connecticut. And I feel very strongly that all paths to voting ought to be open and clear, open and clear, open and clear. So that's the one question on the ballot for the election. And I hope um, we, 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 take up, we take up early voting. And you know what? Uh, we need to change the game of, of elections anyway. And so um, if, if the concern is uh, citizen excitement around election day and the news people being excited about reporting and, and the stickers, then that says we, we got some, <laughs> we, we got to do better than that. That cannot be the reason why we don't want early voting. I, I just, I see that as just a level of ridiculousness. Um, there's nowhere else in our society where we would tolerate that at all. I mean, for God's sake, Dunkin' Donuts is open early so that you don't have to, you know, not get your coffee. They open it. Some, some Dunkin' Donuts open at six o'clock in the morning because they know folks need to get their coffee, right? So, I mean, if Dunkin' Donuts could do it, why can't we do it? I, I'm just trying to make some sense of that. You know, we could we could easily drum up excitement about early voting, just like we get the excited about early detection of anything. You just treat it like that. Oh, vote early. Get it out the way. You know what? Cross it off your to do list. We could do whole campaigns about getting people excited about about early voting. Get it. Get it done. Get it done. <laughs> Connecticut, we for the early voting. And there will be people who still would like to go to vote on election day. I think that's legit, particularly since we don't want to make election day a national holiday. So since we don't want to do that, uh, you know, like to remove all the barriers, since we don't want to do that, then, you know, I say election day, if you, if you don't want early voting, then let people vote all night long, all day, on election day into the night, from midnight to midnight, and let people drop off their ballots or whatever and go vote at any time they feel like it. I'm for removing all the barriers. That's that's it. That's it. And I know why they do it. I mean, I, I understand it because you just don't want people voting. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's just it. You know, I, I don't want you to vote, so I'm going to put all these barriers up to stop you because we want to win and we don't care if we cheat and we don't care if we disenfranchise you. We don't care if we don't count your vote. We don't care if we uh, add more penalty to whatever it is that's going on. You know, I, I just I just I find that horrible. So here we are. So, OK. We're going we gonna to do the thing. 
We're going to do the thing. We're going to do the thing. We're going to do the thing. So um, it is an election season. Get out there to vote. Um, I think we've had enough time to ponder candidates. God knows these, these ridiculous debates have been painful to watch and ridiculous on a lot of levels. But I, but I, I don't want to see them go away. I just like to see them better. Do you know what I mean? Like, I would just like to see them better. I don't know what better is. I maybe a little more time to sort of frame out uh, a statement. I think trying to run on the fly is difficult. Um, it's too much to. I think we should should allow people to really frame out their thoughts beyond sixty seconds. <laughs> you know what we have is soundbite debates, like sound, like who has the? These are sound, sound, soundbite competitions <laughs> these are not debates <laughs> these are soundbite competitions <laughs> why can i say that snappy witty and memorable that's that's what it is snappy <laughs> oh, quick and memorable i i need that you know so like where's the beef <laughs> oh. Oh my God. And did you see, do you, I, I tell you what I love about these internets. They have been dragging Herschel Walker about this fake cop badge. <laughs> They've been dragging him about this fake cop, cop badge. And I think the latest one I saw last night, they had him, um, they had him uh, photoshopped into the village people. <laughs> And I thought this wins. And then they had him in a little kid, kid police car. <laughs> but the village people one was perfect. And he's not fit to be in the village people either. He's not fit for Congress. He is not fit for the village people. Um, and I hold the village people in high regard, let me tell you. Uh, so that for me, that was that was that was the absolute best. But yet again, I make my point that people will vote against their own interests. And I will say this, the reason why they like him, this is the kind of black man that they like. This is the kind of black person that they like. They like this malleable, yes-sa, no-sa black man who has low moral standing no moral compass, prone to violence, and is an ex-athlete. They like those kinds of Negroes. They do. Otherwise, they'd be chock full of the best and bright, the talented 10th among us. But they, they don't do that. You know what they do? They get Herschel Walker. And listen, we got to own Herschel Walker. At the end of the day, he's still ours. At ours meaning Black folks. So we know what time it is. We not, none of us is offended by saying, you don't got the lowest of the low. We, we're not offended by that. You know, he's still ours. He's still going to show up at somebody cookout. You know, he's still ours at the end of the day. And when, and when white folks throw him away, guess what happens? It'll be us who picks him back up. You know, we don't really ever throw us away. We don't. 
White folks do that stuff all the time. White folks is cancel culture. I don't. <laughs> Black folks ain't never been cancel culture. <laughs> now you may have to sit on the other side of the yard so that you don't get your ass beat at the cookout, but you still at the cookout. <laughs> White folks, that's a whole. I don't know what y'all do. Y'all even have cookouts? I don't even know what you do with your peoples. I don't even know. But I do know this. You know, that's a real, very real thing. And I, I don't know why he doesn't see it. I don't know why he doesn't see it. I think the same way that George Logan from Connecticut doesn't see it either. You know, or they or they are they want what they want so badly that they're willing to overlook the reason why they are there, that they're willing to overlook. And they drink the Kool-Aid, you know, you know. So they, Herschel Walker is, is the worst among us. He is, he is the worst among us. Uh, and to be elevated is to say, this is how we think of you all anyway. And he doesn't see that. And, it, and it's, it's not hard for me to say, because as I said, at the end of the day, he still belongs to us. He still belongs to us. He knows he's not the best and brightest among us. He knows this. <laughs> I, I, I just, I, or at least I hope he kind of knows it. But even if he doesn't know it, it doesn't matter. We know it and we still, he is still ours. So, you know, so we, we can say, listen, go sit down. This, this is not for you. This is not where you should be. This is, this is, this is, you're, you're being scapegoated and being used as a pawn. And we ought to be able to say that to each other. We ought to be able to say, have those hard conversations. Now, whether he listens to the hard conversation, I doubt it because he's still doing this. He's still with the white folks fooling around, tricking and fooling. He's still doing it, right? Because he feels like they have accepted him and that he is one of them. Brother, you are not. They have such, they have such disdain for you and your story and your history. You are a means to an end. They need you to be malleable, to not talk back, to bow your head, to shuffle your feet and be a good, 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 you know. And you are giving them that at every level. You are giving them that. And, uh, and it's unfortunate. It is quite unfortunate. But that's all right. Because you belong to us. And so we never going gonna to not let you in. I mean, hell, we let OJ back in. And OJ was never really down with us. <laughs> I mean... I mean, OJ can come to the cookout too. Just don't give him no knives. Don't let him. He can't be near nothing except over there across the yard. But he's still one of, he's still ours. And that's the thing that people, people need to understand about us as people. That we know what it's like to be, I mean, we are always on the margins. We are always scrutinized. We are always uh, uh, put upon. We are always criticized. We are always dragged, you know. And that's because our brilliance is 
frightening to people. I believe that, that our brilliance is frightening to people. And the fear of a black planet is a real fear for folks. <laughs> you know, I mean, Kanye is a complete asshole, full stop. He belongs to us though, because we know his mama died and we know he ain't been right ever since. We understand that. <laughs> we understand that. We never gonna throw him away. Now we might want to trade him, but we never gonna throw him away because we gonna believe in the redemption, because we are redemption believing people to our to our to our detriment we are redemption believing people um and i don't think that's unfortunate i think that is our saving grace that we are redemptive saving people so yeah so while kanye is stupid and uh candace owens is hella i mean she's just she can't get no stupider <laughs> But she, but she belongs to us. <laughs> Who among us in our families don't have one or two cousins <laughs> who we just can't stand? <laughs> all of us, all of us, all of us, one or two cousins or uncle or somebody in the family that we just cannot stand. But yet they are in our family. Same with them, same with Kanye, Candace Owens, Herschel Walker, OJ. Who, give me some more. <laughs> Child, this is. <laughs> and, and, when, and when the world cast them down, guess what happened? We pick them back up. We pick them back up and we, and we give them a sense of community once again, yet again. You know, even though they do everything they can to shed us, we do not shed them. So when I tell you, so when I talk about Herschel Walker, I'm not talking about him because I'm embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. I understand the game and I understand why they're using him. I clearly understand it. And it, I'm not ashamed or embarrassed. I mean, listen, you talking about a, a bunch of people who, who was taken from their country in the world and, and brought here enslaved. There's nothing embarrassing about any of that. And what and and how we survived these 400 and some odd years in this country that has done everything to tell us we are not of God, don't belong here, trash, worthy, lazy, inhuman, not human, wrote it into the constitution that we are not even a full person. So I'm not embarrassed. You know, I'm not. I'm not. He is a product of a system of white supremacy. There's going to be lots of people who come up who are a definite product of white supremacy. That white supremacy has shaped and molded them. I believe it has shaped and molded all of us. Those of us who, who, who uh, 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 kudos to those of us who could get free and can recognize. Everybody can't recognize, you know. That's why I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't believe in that Uncle Tom foolishness. And they don't mean Uncle Tom when they say that stuff, but they mean a Sambo. But okay, for the record. So I, I, I'm not embarrassed by her. I'm not. I just, I'm not embarrassed by my people. No, because I know what our people had to endure to get here. So there is no embarrassment. Now, sometimes I cringe. 
worthy. <laughs> like, ooh, I'm a cringe. Never embarrassed though. I'm not gonna be embarrassed by black people. I'm just not. I don't care. They could they could do the, the, the most ridiculous thing. You could catch us out there with our headscarves on and our and our slippers and our robes and 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 our teeth out. All I don't care, whatever it is, because black is luxury and black is beautiful. That's it. That's that's the only that's the only thing I know. Black is beautiful, black is luxury. So I'm not gonna concern myself with, you know, uh, white folks trying to shame us about whatever. And we bind into the shame and then and then hurl it at ourselves and at our peoples. Nope, I'm not doing that. So yeah. So Herschel, Kanye, Candace, OJ. <laughs> Add some more to the list. I, I know there's a full laundry list of these cats and these folks. I'm never going to be ashamed. And you're always going to be my people. That's it. Full stop. So <laughs> I'm excited to talk to uh, Nicholas uh, Davidoff uh, in a little bit at 1015. He's going to come on and talk about his book uh, on the other side of Prospect. And uh, I got a lot of family members in that book. I'm just going to say. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Nora, we're going we're gonna to call out a little bit earlier because I got some things I need to do. Um, so if you can run the PSAs, I'll be back at 1015. And uh, we'll start a new reel for uh, Nicholas uh, Davidoff uh, and his book. I'm excited. Let me. Oh, before we go, I had the craziest dream this morning. Oh. This is what happens when I, I, I sleep about four or five hours, five, six hours a night. If I get over that, I'm groggy. So I, 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 I got up at seven and I stayed in the bed longer than I wanted to. And I had the craziest dream about my, my upcoming talk with uh, Nicholas. And it was so real. I woke up and I was like startled. <laughs> I had this dream that Nothing went right with the whole conversation. I, I got logged off. My nephews had taken my, my laptop and my desktop and put games on it. I was trying to get on my cell phone. It wasn't my cell phone. It was somebody else's cell phone. I could see Nicholas waiting for me in the Zoom chat. And I could see other people waiting to, to, for me to come on. And I could not get on. I don't know what that says. I don't know if I was having anxiety about this upcoming talk. I don't know. But uh, that was my little freakish uh, nightmare. <laughs> and I never got on either. And I woke up thinking I was at my desktop. I woke up startled that I was in the bed. I was like, oh, you know, so I don't know. Anyway, uh, Nora, play the uh, PSAs. You listening to Love Babs Love Talk on 103.5 WNHH. You know, we're live streaming on the New Haven Independent. And we're on Facebook Live and uh, Twitter Live, YouTube Live, and Twitch Live. So you can catch us. And then you can always go back and listen to us on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever else Harry's got us uh, uh, stored. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in. I'll be back. Uh, the next time you see me, I'll be waiting to talk to uh, Nicholas Davidoff. Hi, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut. 
and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. I want to dance all night, Monday morning, I'm sick of this job already. With this book in a little while Me and my girls, we turned it up last week Boys love this club, cause ladies get in free We love to party Tried to flip, didn't get tossed. Mm-hmm. Pearly whites, time to floss. Yeah. Got top billing, counted the cost. Everybody knows that you're a go getter. Save me with a smile as you earned your cheddar. Work real hard, and who could do better than you, Bob? We got through the week, I didn't even trip when we did speed. Yo, I'm JK, and I'm doing my thing with my big sis.
This is Ace Livingston, and you're listening to 103.5 FM, WNHH. Thank you. 
song could be about us, but it's not.
Yeah, come on. Sitting at the party, rocking back and forth, acting like you divorced. Your legs from the dance floor, girls are saying they want more. Fellas to get on the floor, then somebody screams. It's got to be jaking on the scene. You know that I'm a party fiend, so of course I stay dressed. Don't take a bond of Versace, yes. No, I have to impress. Can't come with nothing. Good morning and welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk on Babs Rose Ivy. I'm so delighted to have this conversation today with uh, Nicholas Davidoff. Hello. Hello. How are you, Babs? It is nice to see you. Nice to see you. I am coming to the library to hear you talk with uh, our friend, Mr. Betts. Oh, good. Thank you for doing that. That's today, right? At 630 or something, whatever. Yeah. So you got this brand new book out that I'm hearing good things about. People are really taken to this thing. And it just hit the, is it out yet? Is it even out? Is it yesterday? Finally, after eight years of working on it. Oh my God. I lost count. Eight years is a huge amount of time to put into anything. Yeah. Did you ever feel like, you know what? I'm ready to give this story up. (laughs) No, that I didn't feel. Although I would say that certain family members, um, might have might have wished not really no I it was really I mean I I was I was committed from the beginning it went back to my New Haven childhood writing this book and it felt really important and it felt really important to do it as well as I could and with the fullness um that I thought that such an important subject deserved and hadn't really been accorded and that felt to me it felt to me like rooted in a kind of unfairness that I that I felt going all the way back to again to childhood. Um, you know, you and I talked about this while I was writing it, and um, if you want, I'll go ahead and explain where it came from. Um, well, I, I I want to tell people the name of the book: "The Other Side of Prospect: A Story of Violence, Injustice, and the American City." So, and you're not you're no stranger to writing amazing books. I mean, you're. Pulitzer Prize nominated author. So you're no story to, you're no stranger to great storytelling. I hope. I mean, you know, different books take different levels of, I think, um, experience. And uh, you know, this is something again uh, uh that I thought about writing for a really long time before I did. And that's because I thought that it would be challenging and I didn't know if I was experienced enough to do it. And um, I think with subjects like this, when you're talking about subjects like interwoven poverty and violence and how inequity comes to be and what its consequences are, these are significant, deep topics. And they are not um, they are not worth writing about unless you can do it with full attention and sophistication and sensitivity that they deserve. And if you can't, um, which I wasn't always sure when I was younger, I could, then I think you wait. And so that's why I waited so long. So how 
did you come to the story or how did the story come to you? Because I, I, I can't imagine just like walking down the street and you're like, hey, I'm going to write this story. I don't know anything about it. Like, how did you find this story? I think I think it's um, the book is rooted, really, if I had to say um, it's a good question. I think it's rooted in a personal story and then in a specific story. Right. The personal story would be growing up in New Haven. You know, I had a single mom, won a lot of money. She slept on, you know, on the fold out and she's always worried how she's going to make it through the month and make the rent and things like that. But then, you know, my New Haven childhood was I spent a lot of time playing baseball all the way through my childhood. And that gives most kids just know their neighborhood, but I knew the whole city because I played on every field there was. And that for me was a real blessing as a kid because it deepened my experience of where I came from. Um, and so I think particularly if you ask me, I would say that it was at Bowen Field in New Hallville when I was, you know, in my early teens. I remember very vividly standing there on the field and, you know, as kids, you don't talk about these things. You just have a sense of what's going on. And I standing out there, I, you know, I'd been to where some of my, you know, I, you knew everybody at every field, right? You knew your teammates, you knew opponents, you knew the people who came to games. And I had some sense. It was just my sense that, you know, my, my mom might've had her struggles and my dad was in and out of institutions, but, you know, compared to me, some of the people who I was playing baseball with were, their families were really struggling. And I, standing there on that field, I just remember it was a dusty field and I was just thinking about it. And when you're a child, you're, it gets really formal in your mind, right? And I was just looking out beyond the field and so close was Yale. And for any of us who are townie kids who grew up in New Haven, Yale, there's a feeling that this is paradise for young people. And it just seemed very strange to me that I couldn't explain. I just thought, how could this be? that these two very different childhoods existed in such close proximity and yet were, you know, in America away. And this was just something I thought about all my life. I thought about how it felt, why it might be. And again, maybe these were conversations because again, as children, you don't have them, or at least we didn't, um, that maybe, you know, those were conversations that I was in part waiting to have. But then if you ask where the specific story came from, so I moved back from Brooklyn to New Haven with my family because it's something I want to do. And I know generally, I guess you could say thematically what I want to do, but you're right. This isn't a specific story. And everything changed when I got a call from a lawyer in New Haven who'd heard what I was doing. And he said, I just want to tell you about one of my clients. And once he began telling me about this young man who was in prison for all these years, since he was a teenager, for something the lawyer was very sure he didn't do. Now, I didn't know whether or not he did it, but as soon as I began to review the case and to get a deeper sense of this young man and his community and so forth, it became clear that this was gonna be a lens for me to think more deeply about some of the problems that have persisted in New Haven. New Haven's just a representative city, right? New Haven's problems are because it's a small city with big city problems. They're the problems of many places and it has the potential and the wonder of many places too. But I call New Haven a model city or you call it a representative city because Everywhere you travel in the country, you see similar, you see it as kind of almost a template for similar issues that are American issues. Yes. So when you decided to, what was the moment that made you decide that this is where you were going to spend your time and that you were going to write about this? Like, what was that moment? I think, you know, I think um, there I was with this young man whose name is Bobby. 
and I was talking with him and I knew that, you know, I knew that I was very invested in the social science and in the history and making sure that I understood all of that. But once I met him, I found him to be such a perceptive, observant and candid person especially in thinking about his childhood. And I thought that he was such a wonderful, he had such wonderful ability to evoke not only his childhood, but then many people's childhood, just in the way that he spoke. And that made me feel, <coughs> excuse me, Babs, I mean, that made me feel that this could be done. And then I began, you know, to meet, you know, when we're talking about the specific murder that I wrote about, I got to know one of the, murder victims family members very well and it was similar with her i felt that she really really spoke into the particulars of her family life and her upbringing both in south carolina and then in new haven but also um she did so with a kind of eloquence and a dignity and a grace and also an honesty like she wasn't she wasn't she wasn't afraid to talk about anything and i felt that by 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 knowing these people they became sort of almost a, a window into many people's experiences and that's what i think what a, a writer seeks you don't you look at the specific in order to talk about many different people and to give people who maybe aren't aware of these experiences a deeper feeling for them so as you are as you're gathering this information and you're thinking okay how do you how do you tell the story in a way um, that is engaging, accurate, truthful, authentic, um, and and compelling? <laughs> you know, you do your best with all those things, and that is that that's the tall order, right, for making a good book. Um, and maybe that's why it takes so long. I mean, if I showed you the way I created the structure for this book. I put just the themes, just the bigger ideas that I wanted to talk about on little index cards. And I put them on the floor in the attic where I work and I was moving them around and they were like boxcars on a railroad train, right? Because you want the order, the structure of your book to in some way or another lift everything that you're saying and to make it go somewhere to have make again, deepen, have more feeling as for accuracy. Well, you tell me, because I hope when I met you the first time that first I told you what I was doing. And then I checked with you at the end of the conversation. I said, you know, have I asked you about anything in a way that seemed as though I was going to go astray? Is my tone in any way suggest that I don't know what I'm talking about? Or did I mention anything in my part of our conversation that was factual that you thought was wrong? And I hope in the course of writing this that I did this with every single person. I was constantly checking myself back over and over and over again, because let's just face it. Some of the problems that I was writing about persist because a lot of people don't care about them. It's easy for them to look past them. And for me, if I made mistakes, that gives, gives people an excuse to look past things. And all I wanted to do was to do some good and to illuminate things that in one way or another, just I felt I was, I was far from the only one who I thought should be doing this, but in my own small way, in doing whatever part I could, I wanted to be sure that there was nothing about the book that was self-defeating, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, so you were a, a child in New Haven and you come back to New Haven after 
being away and you said, you know, I'm gonna come back, raise my family, I'm gonna do all these things. Did this book give you some peace or did it give you a sense of revisiting your childhood? Like what, what was that like? Well, I think one of the reasons maybe I was alluding to earlier that I think New Haven is simultaneously a great place to grow up, but also sometimes a troubling place to grow up is because it's got so much of what the country has to offer. And that's great for a writer. And I think that's also great for a child. The more I think you see of the world as a kid, the more interesting, you know, potentially the world can seem and your life can be, you know, the more experiences you have. And I think in an, in New Haven, I always thought that experience was available to me. I had my bicycle and I could really go anywhere. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, Bobby is, is a kid who takes it upon himself to ride all over the city on his bicycle, on his BMX bicycle. And that makes him pretty rare in his time. But, you know, for me, again, because of baseball, I was just everywhere. And so that made instantly made New Haven a great place to grow up. When I came back, I think I felt that a little more New Haven was, just as most kids are kind of, you know, stuck in their neighborhoods, I had the sense, and I might be wrong, that maybe just a little bit more New Haven was a place where people tended to be stuck in their neighborhoods. Now that could be wrong because uh, you know one shouldn't generalize, but that was my sense. Mm. And I felt that that was that was something that I you know in my work I have gone a lot of places in life, and that was something that I also felt in other places. Again, anything I pretty much would say about New Haven, I would say that New Haven just typifies New Haven's problems, whatever they are, and some of the beautiful things about New Haven too. They typify American, um, you know, sort of complexity of the country. So you spend <clears throat> a lot of time. I mean, eight years is a long time to spend. Uh, with with the with these group of people because they they are people and right um what did that what did that do for you like what how do you do you sustain those relationships do they stay with you forever and ever do you feel like you yourself are connected to this in a in some metaphysical kind of way that's a great question so i heard someone on the radio recently talking who makes movies a filmmaker and they were talking about how it's just what it's like when people make movies for Hollywood. And all these people get together for six weeks and they have this incredibly intense experience and they make a movie and they're almost like a family making the movie. And then they never see each other again. And they just <laughs> go on to the next intense experience. And, you know, and maybe they know like one person after that, or they work on another project together and they fall into each other's arms. Being a writer is a tiny bit like that because it is so intense, except that for me with every project I've stayed in touch with, it just works out. Not everybody would want to stay in touch with me, <laughs> but it's also true that, you know, every project, I think, you know, I, there, 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 there are different, there are different numbers of people who you just naturally stay in touch with. I mean, I, you know, it's not prescriptive or anything. It's just kind of life, whatever happens, you know, it's like a work project for anybody. Some work projects, you become friends with people and other work projects, you work closely together in a good way together. And then you moved on. I think this project, um, I felt particularly lucky in this project that, well, First of all, I interviewed over 500 people. That's a real lot of people. And that's what takes, that's one of the things that takes a lot of time, right? And I did that because I wanted to be really thorough, but I also wanted it to have 
lots of detail and nuance. You remember when you and I were talking about New Hallville when you were a child and we talked about, you know, the Southern qualities of New Hallville and you were telling me about, for example, the people who came up from the South who were, who had farms and they, they'd bring, when, the, when their produce ripened, they'd bring it up to New Hallville and they'd have a pickup truck and they'd drive around and people would come out and they'd buy fresh produce right off the truck that had been driven up overnight from Virginia, North Carolina, or even South Carolina, places like that, right? And I loved stories like that because they really evoked both the day-to-day, -day, but also the vividness of a thriving community, right? And that's one detail, but there's so many other details that make up for what many people consider their neighborhood. And lots of people might remember the church, but then only one person might remember that that guy had a hole in his backyard over which he had a grate, and he'd figure out the best way to smoke meat in his backyard in that hole with the grate over it in his backyard, right? And then I would want to know how he did it. Or I'd want to know, you know, when New Haven was becoming increasingly segregated during white flight, I wouldn't want to just know that, you know, new, uh, a neighborhood like New Hallville became segregated. I really wanted to know how segregation worked. Uh, there's not, nobody's going to make a record of things that they're not proud of, right? But it is possible to find out how it actually happened, what the role of real estate brokers was, what it was like when during that period of transition when black people and white people were living together and some of those white people were racist white people who were going to leave like what exactly did they do and so to do all of this and accumulate all those details so that you are telling the true history of a neighborhood because for me the neighborhood was the main character of the story and neighborhoods and what happens to neighborhoods and the consequences of neighborhoods for kids who grow up in them this was this this was this was at the heart of what i was doing and if you're going to do that with that level of, of, of detail, it just takes time. And so that's really, really what I wanted to do. I wanted people to love the neighborhood and to know the neighborhood. And so, yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Because I, 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 I always think that there's such a richness to all the neighborhoods in New Haven, right? Like New Haven is an interesting place where there's stories buried in all of the neighborhoods that make up the city. And, uh, and if you look and spend a little time, you'll get like a little snatch of it from folks, you know, if they're still standing. I, I, I love that. So Nikki, when did you know that you were going to be a writer? Like, did somebody put a pencil in your hand? Like, when did it catch on fire for you? Well, I was, um, it was certainly, you know, you're good at some things in school and bad at others. And I was always <laughs> a kid who was like, that's what they said I was good at. But for me, there was. I mean, I love, I love playing sports and I loved books. And for me, both of those things, then I love them in such a way that they seemed incredible and unattainable. And I remember just the idea that I could be a writer seemed so far afield that I never even really considered it until right at the end of college. I was just, I don't know what came over me. It was like a brave moment in life where you just say, I'm going to try this. And I remember I told my mother, and because and she said, well, OK, but don't think you're going to stay here. <laughs> you're going to have to find a job. <laughs> so, you know, which I immediately did. Um, and, you know, and then at first, you know, I was just working for other people and doing all of my writing at night and on weekends and things. And it's like everybody else who really wants to do something that's difficult to do. 
Um, I felt like I was lucky to have the opportunity in life to try to do it. And I wasn't going to mess up my opportunity. I was, I didn't know if I could do it, but you know, you know, I didn't know if it would happen, but I knew that if it didn't happen, it wasn't going to be because I didn't try hard enough. And I think the kind of writer I wanted to be, it wasn't really until my first book came out and I held it, um, that, that I knew. And I remember right before it came out, I had my first book nightmare and I was lying. I was already working on my second book, but I was lying there in, in where I was sleeping, waiting for my book to come out. And I had this nightmare that said, they'll never let me do it again. And that happens. <laughs> you know, it's like my mother was a school teacher, right? And she had a school teaching nightmare every year before the first day of school that she would walk into class and she didn't know what to do. And she just wouldn't know what to do. And she would describe these teaching nightmares to us after her first day of school. She wouldn't tell us in the morning. She'd tell us when she came home. And then she'd say, oh, kids, you know, I'm really tired because I had my teaching nightmare. And we would always know that, you know, mom had had her teaching nightmare, but that it had been okay and stuff. And for me, writing feels like something that I love and feel privileged to be able to do, but it always feels tenuous that, you know, you are, you are, you just never know how it will go. And all you can bring to it is your very best. And you can choose the subjects that you, if somebody will let you write about them that are important to you and you will do your best. But I, I just want to say with this particular subject, none has ever been more important to me and or, or ever felt more tenuous. Because when you're writing about things that are troubling for people that you think could be better, and part of the reason they aren't better is because people in a position to do something about these problems don't do it. That's simultaneously frustrating. And it just makes you want to do, do better yourself so that people won't, won't, won't ignore maybe what, what, what has been maybe not their top priority. If you see what I mean, mm -hmm. it's kind of a rambling answer. No, no, I, I, I follow. I get it. I do. I get it. So, um, so as a writer, do you, are you always thinking I want to write that story or, at some point, I'm going to get around to that story. Like, do the stories find you or do you find the stories? Well, as I told you, you know, throughout, you know, after after my New Haven childhood and I went to work, I'd come back to see my mom. And like every couple of years in the New York Times, there'd be an article in the Times about the two Connecticut's, right? And that there were these two radically different Connecticut's, impoverished cities and incredibly wealthy suburbs. And I would read that over and over. And it just seemed like, why should this be? It would ring through my head again. And I knew that I wanted at some point to find a way to write about this. And I'd come back to see my mother. And it just seemed to me anecdotally, as a person just coming to see his mom, that the city was changing for the better for the great university was here. It seemed more and more prosperous. Everything seemed lusher and lusher around it. You could read in the newspaper about how, you know, how the endowment was going up, up, up. And its surrounding neighborhoods, its own backyard, I just had the feeling that there had been, ever since the factories had closed, there had never been a post-industrial solution. So therefore, there had been just you know, generational poverty for some families. And I felt that, you know, that there should be that incredible juxtaposition, the proximity of such, you know, opportunity, and that the sources of opportunity were so limited 
so close by, this really, really bothered me. And it just seemed on some deep fundamental level wrong to me. And I did not understand as I traveled the country and saw similar juxtapositions, why people weren't talking about this more. And it's not to say that I was the only person talking about it, but clearly not enough people were talking about it since it persisted. So I decided that I would, you know, at one point when I could do the job well enough in my own mind, I had the level of competency, this was what was going to, what would be. I mean, other subjects, how do you find them? I find them in all sorts of ways. One way that I've traditionally found subjects is I write a lot for the New Yorker magazine and the New York Times magazine, and I try not everything is a book, right? Some things might just be an article. So I tend to try things beforehand in a shorter way to see if I'll be able to write about them at greater length in a way that will sustain a reader. Are you a, uh, Would you say you're a good observer of the human condition? You, you can't make me praise myself. <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. I mean, I think one thing I am is I'm pretty good at finding people who are good observers of the human condition so that in writing about other people, I hope I'm as observant and as sensitive and as compassionate as I, I can be. But I also think that any good observer as a writer should not rely just on themselves. And that's why you talk to so many people, because observation is limited to whoever you are and whatever you bring to something. But if you talk to 500 people, that's a lot of different points of view. And that's really what I was after. Um, I really wanted to know what you thought. I wanted to know what Kerm thought. I want to know what Len thought. I want to know what, you know, Katie Jean thought. I wanted to know what Cynthia thought. I wanted to know all these people, if you have lengthy conversations with them, as I did with you, you're not just learning about the pickup truck, which is full of delicious vegetables that people are going to cook in such a way that as you walk down the block, you can smell what people are having for dinner. You're also going to learn how people feel about being in a position to not only provide a good childhood for their children, but a source of upward mobility. And you're also going to learn when that is taken away, what that feels like. And if you can do that, if you can listen to how a real spectrum of people are talking about things like that, then just by extension, I think you become a good observer. But for me to become a good observer on my own, then I'm not doing my job because my job is the experiences of many, many people who are willing to authentically describe them. So do you think you have a memoir in you? Oh, I don't I, know if I, you have one. Do you I have did. one? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah, no. When my So when my father was someone who was a real a person of great personal promise, who was like, you know, he's the child of immigrants who's, you know, his grandfather sold things on the street. And then he, um, I won't bore you with stories of them, but, you know, it was a immigrant story of, you know, gradual uplift. My father became the first grandson, you know, and he was going to go, he went to wonderful college and his, he played high school football with Jim Brown. He played against him in college and lacrosse. I mean, these were, you know, he was a, the, he, he he was a great student, and then he completely fell apart. He had psychotic breakdowns. At a certain point, my mother, when we were little, very little, my sister was one and I was three, we had to leave overnight because he'd become violent. He didn't know, you know, but nonetheless. And when he died, I 
felt as though all anybody had ever talked about were the years of his promise and his decline, all the years he spent in institutions, wandering in streets, you know, falling apart. This wasn't something people ever talked about. And I thought, well, it's my last chance. It's his eulogy, you know, and I'm going to tell people what it was like to be that person. And so that was my eulogy. And then it became a New Yorker article. And then I eventually expanded it into a kind of a memoir of my two parents. So. Wow. Yeah. Did your that mom ever the get crowd a chance sounds to... happy. The, the what? The crowd sounds happy. That's what that book was called. Did your mom get the chance to read it? Yep. And, and, and what did she say? Uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to talk to you and say the nice things that my mom's saying to me, but you know, I mean, I, it wasn't easy. I mean, we cried a lot. What can I say? I mean, this, you know, like many, many families have difficult things and every family has difficult things in the family. Right. And this was our, these were our difficult things and it had great effect on everybody. I mean, you know, my father was a tragic person and because of his, you know, just, you know, really hard life, it made my mother's life much harder too. And when you marry someone who you're in love with and they completely fall apart and they become, you know, something that you are tied to because of your kids through your whole, their whole childhood, this is not an easy thing. So I think it wouldn't be easy for my mother to go back through those things. And I really credit her for spending those days looking at it very carefully with me and talking to me all the way through. And she didn't ask me to change anything. Um, she just wanted me to make it better. I mean, that's the kind of person my mother is. She's a very noble person. I like that. Yeah. I mean, listen, we all have things in our families, but we all can't put put them to, to paper. And so I think that's a real gift to sort of be able to do that. And uh, I, almost like leaving a legacy for your own children to sort of explore and examine who their grandparents were and are. Like, I think that's invaluable. So, you yeah, know. it's funny. You, when you're writing things like that, you, you, you think a little, you're right. You think a little bit about that. Like, who's this really for? What good, what good could it do? When I was writing that book, I was very conscious of the fact that people didn't, I mean, when I was a child in New Haven, nobody knew that I had a severely mentally ill father. I mean, I just never talked about my father. And that was perfectly easy to do as a kid from the same th reasons that I told you on the baseball field. It was just perfectly easy for all of us to exist in the present, to just treat each other as friends in the moment, playing baseball or going to school or whatever it was, and never talk about what was going on at home, which a lot of crazy things were going on in the homes of the kids that I grew up with who were my friends. And I only learned about them. I mean, it's moving to me. I'm sorry, but I only learned about them, you know, when I was a grown up. And then, you know, I, I felt very lucky in my childhood. I had a mother who was completely behind me. She worked her butt off, you know, and she, you know, it might not have been fancy. We, we didn't have a TV, we didn't have dessert, but we, we had, we were supported. We knew where we were going. We had, and, you know, but this, it was very hard at times to go and see someone who was as, who was as troubled as my father. And I had to go see him every month, minimum, you know, and it, I think it, it's better if people talk about things because once I began after that to talk about it, first of all, I got, people didn't write about mental illness very much when I did that. And I got so many letters from readers and that was, it was one of my friends who's a writer said to me, I never forget this. He looked across the table from me. We were having a beer or something. He looked at me and he said, 
don't you understand that people feel closer to you when you talk about the hard things in your life? And, you know, I'd sort of been brought up, nobody admitted, you know, what my father's struggles were and things like that. And so I just, I mean, these were, you know, meaningful times. I think that's uh, very, very, very valuable because I think children now are taught to share and talk and, 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 and we know things about each other. I mean, I think we're around the same age, kind of, maybe a, some years difference, but I grew up with the same kind of belief that, you know, you just, whatever happened in the house happened in the house. And when you're out there in the streets, you just didn't, you just didn't sit around talking about it. You just sort of were, like you said, in the moment, your friends, and that's just how it went down. So, but now I think kids and people have, we have grown to the point where, um, the doors are starting to open a little bit around secrecy and mental health and, you know, um, identifying those kinds of things around and people sort of sharing, yeah, yeah, your dad is mentally ill. Yeah. Well, my aunt or somebody, or, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're starting to sort of see more of people um, opening up. So. Yeah. It wasn't just that, but I mean, you know, all the many things that seemed at one point in life so or in time when you know when when I was a kid that seemed just these were things that just should not be mentioned and I think people were so afraid of mentioning them and there could be many reasons for it but one thing I will say is that you know life is better when you're able to uh, put your feelings somewhere in such a way that you cleared out to be more you know open to what's really going on with other people it sounds kind of, you know, um, I don't know what it sounds, but it's certainly, I think, um, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I think, I think I got to be a better writer once I wrote that eulogy for my dad, because if you are holding something away from you that is that big in life and you are just keeping it from yourself, I think that that means that you aren't fully able to express yourself in the thinking work that you're doing. So, you know. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I, I received that in a lot of ways that I can't begin to tell you. Um, so your book is out. How do you feel? You know, I, um, every, every time you, you, there's a, there's a mixture of relief and anxiety. If you're being completely honest, you want it, you want it to go well for the book, because especially if you're writing a book about, you know, things that you hope will be better in the world, your own tiny, tiny contribution to something like that. You naturally hope that, you know, if you're writing about things that you feel have been somewhat ignored, if your book gets ignored, that's a double frustration, right? Because your book is just your own, every person can only do so much as what they can do. But if this is what you you, you decide to do, and, you know, people either don't think well of it, or they don't pay any attention to it whatsoever, that would make you feel twice bad, whereas usually you would just feel once bad. <laughs> like that. But don't you think you've earned uh, that's some, an honest answer. But you've earned some, you've earned a great deal of grace around uh, establishing a reputation of being one of one of the finest American writers. Uh, so your book is not going to get ignored. Oh, I guess I, I don't think of it in the same way you do, maybe. I guess I think of it more that um, there's so many reasons to try, to try so hard to make your book as good a book as it can be. And the first mm -hmm. is, in this world, there is so much 
competition right now for people's attention. And it goes beyond whatever they're reading. There's so many different books for people to read. So many books are published. But then we live, in, when I was a little kid, all we had in our house for, was were radio and books, right? And I was someone who could listen to the radio and read a book. So I was always reading a book. But now there are these little rectangles <laughs> with, you know, and on those rectangles, I guess you can have books on those rectangles, but that's not what most people have on their rectangles, right? And they're enormously distracting. And, you know, let's face it, you know, if you're looking at, if you're looking at your phone all the time, you're not reading a book. So I just feel as though there's a lot of competition for people's attention. And it was up to me to do as well as I could in part, because I had to, you know, engage with that. <laughs> So that's the that's the the granular on the kind of thing that a person thinks about when they're trying not to pay attention to their new book <laughs> and, not, <laughs> and not succeeding. <laughs> now, now, do you have a ritual that once the book is out um, uh, that you do something or go on vacation or do you have a ritual of some sort to like say? Okay, yeah, I have. Done. I do have a ritual. It's starting a new book before it comes out so that I don't have to pay as much attention to its fate. <laughs> Have you started a new book? And it takes, you know, nine months to a year from the time you finish the book until all the editing and fact-checking and everything is done. So all those months I've been working on a new book. So you are working on a new book? Always, always. Seriously? Always, always. I mean, I got kids. You know, I mean, this is... I get it. This is this is this is what you do, but what I, do. I always just think you maybe need a little mental health downtime. Like okay. that might be true, and there might be members of my family who may be on your side in that one. <laughs> like, could you take a week off? Can you, can you take a month off? Can you, you know? Now, I was researching eat? this summer. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Oh Lord, God bless you. I I, I admire that kind of commitment to to the craft. Well, so, you're spending eight years on something, you know, that's a long time. And with it come many other consequences. And as a result, you better get going on the next one. Your wife's hands are going to go to her hips and you say, you know, <laughs> what, on, Nikki. what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> eight years, really? <laughs> that might happen. Yeah. Well, I know that you are in conversation um, this evening at the New Haven Public Library at 630. And, and if people want to hear more, will there be books there to, to buy or like what's the? I think so. Um, and there also will be um, an event at Stetson Library. Next yes. On the 26th, I think. Yes, yes the Stetson uh, Library. And, and, and I think you're going to be in Madison. Yep, at RJ Julia, um, which is a wonderful local independent bookstore. I, you know, my New Haven childhood was uh, going to the New Haven Public Library and checking out books. And I met my first writer there, Eleanor Estes. And uh, soon enough, I was shoveling her walk and I was putting up her Christmas tree and I was raking her leaves. And I did that for as many families as I could find. And then I would spend that money at places like Atticus. And in the back in the day, it was like the Foundry and Book Haven. Oh my God, yes. Remember all those places? That's where I, in Cutler's Record Shop, that was all my money and clothes at Cutler's too. <laughs> and um, so it's very exciting that tonight, for example, Atticus, where I bought books as a child, will be now selling my book at the library. And I think that there will be some books from the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven at Stetson that they have, um, that they are bringing. And but it's, it's, you know, there are a million places, obviously you can buy books on Amazon, but for me, one of the great joys of New Haven was there are all these local independent merchants, yes. like the guy who sold, you know, 
my pants and my records and my books and my my bread and everything else you could buy from the, that family. And so I always, always um, try as best I can to buy things from the people who are my neighbors. Yes, I like that. Well, I will see you this evening. And uh, if I don't buy a book today, I'll wait to get it at the Stetson so you can sign it. If they're like a signed uh, copy. <laughs> anything, anything that's good for you is great for me, Babs. Well, it was such a pleasure talking to you. And, I'm, and I will say this before I let you go. I did have a, um, a conversation nightmare too. And I was talking about it at the early part of my show. I was, I dreamed that I was, you were waiting for me to come on and I, and all my devices would not let me be great. Like I could not get on. And I woke up with the sense of, oh my God. And I jumped up and I ran and I checked all my devices because I was so freaked out by that dream of not being able to talk to you today. That seems like such a natural dream to have. Like when you're, cause like, like it's like with our cars, right? We have to get to that meeting or something like that. And we don't really know how that, all that metal and wires and stuff under the hood works unless we know. And if you don't know, you feel just like you're so, you can't do what you do if, if the machine won't work. That's right. <laughs> so when you said, you know, your mother and her, her nightmare and your nightmare, I was like, I just had that. I never have that. I had it today. I think because I was so excited to talk to you today. Oh, um, that's so nice and, of you. Uh, I've been looking forward to it too. And, uh, but I, I really loved that day when you were telling me about the, 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 how the vegetables came to the pickup truck that would drive around the neighborhood and people would buy it. And then, you know, and then like somebody else was telling me a similar story, but it ended in that as you walked down the block, you could smell pineapple upside down cake outside everybody's house. Yeah. And you, but you, the best, the best baker you could tell just yes. from the smell. And I love things like that. To me, that is what community actually is. People doing things they love and making things that make other people feel good about life and so forth. And things that get in the way of that, it just kind of, you know, on some level pissed me off. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. And I wish you, you more success, every success with this book. I hope it's well received. And I know um, uh, that you'll do quite well. So I will well, see you soon. You, and I hope none of your machines ever fail you. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Take, take care. care. <laughs> Thank you, Nora, for sitting in for Harry this morning. I'll be back tomorrow. Y'all behave yourselves. I'll see y'all in these streets. Take good care. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.